So uh, the question is, who is this, right? Who is this Jesus? That's what we're going to be talking about today, and we're in the story of Palm Sunday, which if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it to you in just a second. But I don't know if you've thought about this. If you Google search who is Jesus, you get 236 million hits in 0.4 seconds, okay? Uh, just a side note, one of the things that uh, they're saying is the hardest for the youngest generation among us is the fact that they need to be able to sort and sift through incredible tonnage of information. And in fact, you can type anything you want into Google and it comes back with a million options. And the actual, the, uh, the skill that you need to have as a young person nowadays is not finding the right information. It's sorting and sifting through what is something you can trust and what is something that you can't trust. I will bet you out of those 236 million hits, uh, many of them are a Jesus that is not part of, not from scripture, not one that we would base off of God's word, but based on what other people think. And I think if you asked anybody this question, you get a slightly different version of who Jesus is from them, right? I think all of us are uh, pulling our version of who Jesus is from our own experiences, from the things that we've been through, from the, the situation we were born into. We bring kind of all of this baggage to us when we look at who Jesus is. And sometimes we can be off by just a little bit, but it can make a huge difference. Okay, so uh, when it comes to truth and when it comes to what we believe about Jesus, there is a right, there is a true place to go to, to what we believe about Jesus. And even if we're off by just a, a little bit, it can make a huge difference. Okay, so maybe you know this or you don't know this, but even if you're, um, if you get into a plane and you fly from JFK, nope, let me get this backwards. If you fly from LAX, I know you love to make fun of me, Aaron, when I use this illustration. Uh, this is a good one for youth, so he's heard me say this before. When you fly from LAX to JFK, okay, so it's thousands of miles across the country. If you start your heading one degree off, by the time you land across the country, you'll be 50 miles away from where you intended to land. Okay, so uh, I don't know about you, but if you were leaving LA and you're like, I'm going to go spend a week in, in Manhattan, it's going to be awesome. We've got things all planned out. We're going to go do some cool stuff in Manhattan. It's going to be great. And you flew one degree off the entire time, you'd end up in... Nyack, New York, which is 50 miles from Manhattan, or Bridgeport, Connecticut. I don't recommend either of those things. Or Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, you would have a much different vacation in Trenton, New Jersey than you would in New York, New York, okay? I think probably you wouldn't want to be Instagramming, you know, Trenton too much. You'd be like, I actually don't want to tell people that I'm in Trenton, New Jersey instead of New York. Uh, you probably wouldn't want to go out after 6 p.m. Just going to throw that out there. I've been in Trenton. It's not somewhere you want to hang out. <laughs> Bob from New Jersey is mad at me. Um, <laughs> but you'd be 50 miles off. And I think sometimes when we uh, build this picture of who Jesus is, and we take all these outside influences into our picture of Jesus, we can get off sometimes just by a little bit, but it can make a gigantic difference in our life if we're off by just a bit. And so I want to reset us. Next week is Easter. We get a chance to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It's the most important thing to the church uh, to all of us as believers, but I want to reset this week, and I want to just remind you that your view of Jesus might be off by just a little bit. It might be skewed by your personal experience. It might be skewed by the culture around you. It might be skewed by what your mother-in-law tells you. It might be, no, nobody else. That was just me. Okay. <laughs> the question is, do we have the right version of Jesus? And I think because we live in a culture where we can customize everything, Sometimes we customize Jesus. Sometimes we build a boutique version of Jesus. 
We say, like, I, I like Jesus, but I'm not sure about the miracles. Or I, I, I can get behind the, the cross, but I don't know about the virgin birth. Or Jesus says all this stuff. We don't really believe he said all this stuff. He said some of this stuff. And we kind of cut and choose and pick and choose the things we want. Some of Jesus' teachings are incredibly difficult and radical. And sometimes we don't want those parts. Or sometimes we want the Jesus that's okay with us just showing up at church once a month and not entering into community. Or sometimes we like the Jesus who's not challenging us personally. We get a nice fuzzy feeling when we show up at church and we are around people that are really kind. And we like that. And then we go home and it kind of carries us through the week. But we don't want the Jesus that wants us to live it on the day-to-day basis, okay? And so we kind of build this version of Christ. And I want you to know uh, when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on the Holy Week, on the week of where he would go to the cross and where he would be resurrected, there were people there who were pumped about him coming. He came in triumphantly. He came in as a conquering king. People were just losing their mind over Jesus. It was like boy band central. There were fans out there, like literally just waving their palm branches all over the place, throwing their coats on the ground and worshiping him as he came in as a king. And a week later, the Jesus that they had built up in their mind didn't exist and they all abandoned him. Sometimes we can be off by just a little bit, but it can make a huge difference in our lives. And so I want to reset. I want to talk a little bit about uh, that boutique Jesus that we create and to ask you, to challenge you. Are you really serving the Jesus that we see in the Bible, the Jesus that we see in Scripture, the one that is testified to through the Word of God? Um, I think they had a disadvantage of not knowing the whole story. We don't have that excuse. We know the whole story, okay? So it's time for us to really look at that. So I'm going to start here in um, Luke chapter 19. And when we're picking this up, Jesus, uh, he has done around three years of ministry. Uh, He is entering into Jerusalem at Passover time. This is about a week before uh, Passover time. And he is, there's been a kind of a buzz in the city about him, right? So when he enters the city, he enters in kind of as this rock star. Now, I don't know how Jesus was processing all this, but I would bet he wasn't super comfortable with the, the craziness that was going on because he knew a lot of the people in the crowd had the wrong idea about what was going to happen. That, in fact, he knew the whole story. And so he's being celebrated as he enters in, and he's probably looking at all these people and thinking, in a week from now, it's going to be the exact opposite of this. There's going to be just this downcast, downtrodden viewpoint on all these people's minds of who I am. They're going to be beat down by watching me go to the cross. Probably, I would bet you, he felt compassion for the people who are about to go through a whole lot in a week. And he wondered, are these people going to fall away or are they going to find their way back into the church once they find out that have been resurrected? And so here's the story. He picks it up in Luke chapter 19. He's kind of preparing to go into the city. And he says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying this? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, I, every amazing piece of art, by the way, is based on 
the story of Christ. I mean, you just, every great movie, every great story, there's like some element of a savior who comes. And, and I just want you to know, this one reminds me of Star Wars. Okay, I don't know if any of you guys saw the new trailer for the new trash that's coming out, whatever that new trash is. But I go back to 1977 and the um, incredible Star Wars, the original one, right? In that movie, right, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi who says, these are not the what you're looking for. Yeah, these are not the droids you're looking for. Jesus totally pulled this on these guys. He essentially told them to use the Jedi mind trick, okay? So he basically says, look, he probably picked the two guys who were the worst at getting away with bad stuff. All of these Jewish people that were following Jesus would have been like wanting to be good, wanting to be faithful, wanting to follow the rules, okay? Some of us are like that. Others of us are really good at breaking rules. Some of us get caught every single thing we ever did in our childhood, right? You, you maybe know who you are. Some of us are really good at lying. Some of us are terrible at lying. So I'm guessing he sent the two goody two-shoes, right, to go find the cult. And he said to them, when you get challenged, because you're not going to get 10 feet out of there with this cult, because I know you, you're going to get caught because that's who you are. I just want you to say, uh, the Lord needs this, <laughs> right? The Lord, the Lord needs this. Uh, I think there's uh, something going on here that is really, really important that we forget, there is this incredible cosmic presence who's in charge of every single thing that's happening all the time. We, we, we basically uh, find ourselves sometimes thinking that we're on our own. And in reality, we have a Holy Spirit who's in charge of every single thing going on. That in fact, when God calls us to do something, even when it feels like we're not going to be able to do it, or it feels hard, or it feels like something that we're afraid to do, that we actually receive the power that we need through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And so he calls these two guys to go and untie the colt, and they get caught two steps into it, and they're able to just say, the Lord needs it, and they're able to bring the colt to Jesus. Now, Jesus wanted to make sure that he was on a specific colt to fulfill a specific, uh, uh, a specific prophecy made about him entering in the city, and they weren't even really aware of what was going on. It wasn't until after the fact they put all the pieces together on what was actually happening here, but for Jesus, he knew exactly where the cult was, where to send them, and how it needed to go to bring it to him because of the Holy Spirit, because he knew that God had a plan, and he was following the plan piece by piece. I think sometimes we don't realize how much power is available to us as Christians. We're afraid to do what God has called us to do. We're not really sure how to follow through on it. And if we would tap into the Holy Spirit, we would be able to do things that would seem kind of ridiculous sometimes. Right, so he goes on. I'm going to skip over to another passage from John chapter 12. I'm going to jump to a couple different versions of this story because it's in a couple different versions. So if you're trying to keep up, you might just want to watch on screen. So the disciples didn't really know what was going on. So John 12, uh, verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that had been written about him and what had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So this was written after the fact, and the crowd, or the, the disciples, weren't necessarily processing everything all at that time. They were trying to figure out what they were supposed to be doing, what Jesus was doing. Jesus had the whole picture in mind, and it was after the fact that they went back and reprocessed that Jesus was doing all these things on purpose. Now, the crowd, you wonder, how is it that they're welcoming him as a as a rock star at this point. What has been going on here? 
And it basically shows us that just a few weeks earlier, just a little bit of time earlier, he had been to uh, the region very close to where he was coming in triumphantly, and he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so he had basically come to uh, a tomb where Lazarus laid. He had been dead for four days. He basically called them to roll away the tomb and call them out from it. And Lazarus got up and walked out. And the people were like, what? There were many, many people before Jesus who were messiahs where it didn't end well. In fact, there were a couple that had uh, caused riots in Jerusalem. And so the Romans wanted to squash. This is part of the reason why Jesus was met with such ferocity Right when he started to do what they thought was going to be a kind of a riot, when he started to stir the people up. Okay, so they're probably watching him come into the city and they're afraid from the beginning that he's going to do what others have done before him. Right? But those messiahs, they always it always ended poorly, they always died, it always ended with their death. There was sort of this this wave of people in Jerusalem who were waiting for the foot of Rome to get off of their neck. And they would follow the next Messiah, and it would end poorly, and everybody would suffer, right? But there were still true like, believers who were waiting for when is God going to bring about the Messiah who's actually going to get us free from Rome, okay? And so there had been the, all this stuff swirling around, but what Jesus did was different than anyone else. So he had raised somebody from the dead, and then it started to get around. So people started to hear that this Messiah was, could conquer death. There was something different about him. Not only did he heal people, and not only was his teaching incredible, but he actually was able to heal someone and to bring them back from the dead. And that started to get around. So a couple weeks before, Jesus does this, and people start talking about it. And in Jerusalem, it was a pretty tight-knit community. There were probably a lot of people from out of town visiting. So as people came in, did you hear about Jesus? He, Lazarus was dead. He was stone-cold dead. He told us to move the stone, and we didn't really want to, because we don't know, I don't know if you've been around a, a body that's been dead for a couple of days. It didn't smell the best, right? But we went ahead and did it, and he brought Lazarus out of the tomb. This is a Messiah that we've been waiting for. He's different than the rest. And they, so they started to talk, and the buzz started to build. And all these people started to hear this incredible story of something different than anything that they had seen or, uh, or, or had, had happened with any of the other Messiahs that had come before him. And so by the time he shows up in Jerusalem, things are buzzing. Things are going crazy, and everyone is talking about Christ. I think a lot of people, the thing that did it for them, the thing that got them excited, the thing that made the difference in their life was the fact that Jesus had conquered death by bringing Lazarus back from the grave. It's still the thing, by the way, that is, it makes it uh, exciting for anyone who believes in Christ now. In fact, you, show me another person who predicted their death who died, who came back from the grave, who showed himself to hundreds of people over another 40 days and then ascended into heaven, and I will listen to them as the Messiah. Essentially, the same thing that got them excited about Jesus, the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, is the same thing that gets us excited, except we've seen the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we know that the end of the story means that we get resurrection with Christ. That was a precursor to what was really coming. That was something to, to whet the appetite to what the real story was going to be when Christ was going to raise from the dead and then be seated in heaven and give us resurrection from the dead as well. And so it's still the thing that makes the difference. It made the difference for them. It got them excited. It got them to a place where they were worshiping Jesus. It's still the thing that gets us excited, that makes, gets us to a place where we are worshiping Jesus. We are compelled to worship the God who is resurrected, who has conquered death, the one that we can have faith in to receive that.
that same resurrection in our life. So we're going to skip ahead to Matthew 21. Verse 8, a very large, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. While others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? Right, so Hosanna is this uh, phrase. It's sort of like hallelujah in the way that we use it. But it actually means, uh, it's essentially the two words to be delivered and to beseech. Right, so essentially it's pleading with someone to deliver you. So Hosanna is a chance for us to plead with God to deliver us. The fact that they were saying it to Jesus shows what they thought about him. What they thought about him was that he was a prophet. Maybe they thought about, some of them thought that he was the son of God. Definitely some of his followers did. But in that crowd, I'm guessing many people who said Hosanna were actually thinking that he was going to be a political hero who was going to remove Rome from, from their situation. They were basically under Rome's boot and they wanted Rome gone. And they thought Jesus would be able to stir people up, which is funny because I think if any of them had really known Jesus, they probably would have realized pretty quickly that he wasn't a warrior. And he wasn't going to come and lead a battle. That he was going to come and lead a completely different kind of kingdom than, than they were expecting. And so Hosanna is this, please deliver us. And when they say please deliver us, what they mean is from Rome. Because they were living under Roman rule and they longed to be free. And they were waiting for a Messiah who could relieve that for them. This is still a question we ask. Who is this Jesus? I think if you ask anyone that you work with, in your neighborhood, in your family, you're going to get a different answer. You're going to get some people that will say he's a very moral teacher. You'll have some people that say that they don't even believe in a historical Jesus. Right? You'll have some people who will look at him as uh, somebody who stirred up a rebellion and then was killed. Um, there's different ways to look at who Christ is, but the Bible tells us that there was something different about this Messiah than any other Messiah that came because he had conquered death, because he was the Son of God. So some of them in the crowd had got it right, and some of them had got it wrong, and I think we still struggle with that same question. And for us, sometimes I think we try to manage Jesus, which is a really ridiculous thing to do. It's like trying to tie down a whale or stop a volcanic eruption or withstand a tsunami. Like there is no way for us to control and manage Christ. He is all powerful. He is not something that we can basically uh, make palatable sometimes. He's not somebody where we can, we can basically pick and choose uh, some of his teachings and some of the things that he's into and make him easily digestible for people. But in fact, there is something incredibly revolutionary about what he says and what he teaches and how he lived and what he calls us to do that calls us to live in a very radical way. It takes a, a level of uh, acceptance of Christ that is pretty high to live in the radical way that he's called us to live. And sometimes we want to manage him. We want to make him more palatable, more digestible, less <laughs> radical. But he was an instigator. He was radical. He, he was somebody who was outside of our box. And when we try to put him in a box, we basically take away the power that comes with Christ. We're essentially worshiping something that is not what was intended uh, to be worshipped, and it's not the true Jesus. So I had this conversation with um, uh, a theologian. Uh, I, was at a, I was at a seminary, and I was auditing a class, talking with somebody. And we had this conversation, and he basically said, yeah, you know, I think Jesus, the greatest thing about him was that he was able to take really, really, really complex issues 
and teach them to really uncomplex people in a way that allowed them to understand it. That he, he used parables, and so he would, you know, talk to farmers, and he'd say, here's a parable about a farming that will help you understand this really complex issue. And he said he was just one of the best teachers that you could ever find. He did things that, like, no one else could do. Like, it was incredible how he related to people. And so we just kept talking, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm listening. I'm enjoying this conversation. And then he got to the point where he was like, you know, but I don't believe in any of that miracle stuff, right? And, I mean, he probably wasn't son of God, I and mean, that's probably overblown. And, you know, he died, and we just, we just know he died. We don't actually think that he was risen from the dead. And then he sort of in the conversation in a really smug way, um, which, you know, you can tell you how I was feeling about the conversation at this point. He said, you know, I just really think that people who believe that stuff are really stupid. And I was like, that, I'm, that's me. <laughs> I believe all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes we don't want to be branded as a radical. We don't, we don't want to necessarily throw it out there to have uh, this conversation with people. But like the historical Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a completely sinless life, showed us what it looked like to prefer other people and to be selfless through his entire ministry, right? Loved and served people in a way that was outrageous, incredible. Led people in a way that made no sense at all. Leadership essentially was uh, the stronger is in charge, right, at that time. And he basically was saying, as leaders, we're going to basically put ourselves beneath everyone else. We're going to be selfless. He essentially went to the cross of his own will, gave himself up for humanity, died a physical death, was in the grave for three days, then rose from the grave, then spent time building the people that were following him and building the church so that it would survive to today, and then was risen into heaven. He lived a completely sinless life, 100%, the miracles, all of it, I believe 100% because God's word speaks to it and tells us who Jesus was. Now, some of us, we don't necessarily want to hold on or grab on to all of that stuff. And there are times, even when I'm in conversation with people, where I, something's coming out of my mouth and I'm like, do I really believe that? That sounds crazy. But that's the Jesus that we find in Scripture. That's the one who we're called to worship. That's where the real power comes from. And if we get this wrong, we can be way off with who, what we believe about him and how we relate to God. You cannot manage him. You can't make him safe. You can't do it. It's not possible. If you try to manage him and you try to make him safe and you try to strip off this layer and that layer and try to round the corner over here and change the way that he taught over here and change this teaching over here, you will essentially find yourself with a Jesus who has no power. That's not the one we're called to worship. I think today we minimize Jesus by picking and choosing what is true and what is exaggerated. We make him palatable. And I love the fact that in one of Jesus' very hardest teachings, John chapter 6, he has all these people following him. He's fed all these people a couple times, right? And he's a big spectacle and show, which, by the way, you can still have an, a huge group of people gather to see a huge spectacle if you feed them and you put on a good show. That works. That still works. No matter where you are, that works, okay? So Jesus sees that there's something happening here where people are following him for the spectacle and for the food, essentially. And he rips off one of the hardest teachings of his entire ministry to thin the crowd out. John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, uh, the people, after they heard this teaching that he, that he um, 
that he taught them. It says, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What was the teaching? He said, hey, it's great that you've been showing up for the food, and it's great that you've been here for the show, but I want you to understand that if you're going to follow me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody was like, we're out. It's like Jesus dropped the mic. The disciples were fuming at him. They were like, Jesus, we had thousands of people following us. This was getting awesome. We were like celebrities. Dude, I walked around with a bag and fed thousands of people out of it. I don't know how it worked, but I did what you told me to do, and we fed all those people. We were like a rock star. He'd move from one section to the other. He'd go around the lake. Everybody would be waiting for him already. He'd jump in a boat and go on the other side. Everybody was there waiting for him already. Jesus made his message more difficult to thin out the crowd of people that believed him to make sure that they weren't there for the spectacle or for the food. He still calls us to accept his difficult teachings and his radical lifestyle that he's called us to live. That in fact, there are things that we would prefer not to receive. Jesus' teaching on money, rich people, divorce, I mean, he calls us to hate our family in comparison to how much we love God. He calls us to love and pray for our, our mortal enemies in this world. He calls us to, to, uh, to accept these difficult teachings on divorce, marriage, possessions, right, the rich. These are radical positions. And when we try to rub the edges off of Jesus, essentially what we end up with is a, a Jesus who's not powerful, one that doesn't actually exist. We end up worshiping something that we have created and called Jesus. We're called to accept the historical Jesus from Scripture and to go all in and to give everything to him and to allow him to give us purpose in this life. And I, the, the opposite end of this, right, when we start to create uh, Jesus into the thing that we want to worship is that we end up worshiping something that isn't Christ, which means that we aren't in Christ which means that we don't get eternal life. We lose purpose in this life right now. We lose the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can create an idol named Jesus that's not actually him. Jesus said there will be a time in the end days where people who said they were worshiping me will come to me and I will say, I don't even know these people. That's, that's a real thing that happens. And so who is this Jesus? When he entered the city, the Pharisees, the religious elites, the people... They were all trying to manage him, especially the Pharisees were trying to manage him. Look at what it says that they did. Matthew 21, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you that if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. So they're like, they're like Jesus, you can't let people worship you. You are just a man. right? We're taught in our scripture that we aren't supposed to worship a person. They didn't understand that he was the son of God who had come to save the world. They didn't understand who he was. They were trying to manage the crowd and manage him and to keep him from creating an uprising that would actually make it more difficult for them with Rome. They were trying to manage Jesus. And he says, look, if I tell them not to worship me, the stones will cry out. The trees will cry out. My creation will will still continue to worship me. There is no way that you can manage the power that comes along with Christ. You cannot do it. You cannot tame him. He is the all-powerful son of God. 
And if you would stop worshiping him, that wouldn't be a problem because the earth would still continue. His creation would still continue. There would be faithful people who would still continue to worship him. And set all these people were trying to control, manage, and tame him. So my question as we're getting close to the end here is what about you? Like, who do you say Jesus is? This is a question that all of us must answer. You have to have an answer to this question. Now, I'm telling you what I, scripture says, and I'm telling you what I think is the, the best decision that you could possibly make, but you have to personally have an answer to this question. One of my favorite stories about Jesus, this was in his uh, youth ministry days, as far as I'm concerned. He, uh, as a rabbi, had just a couple followers, and he decided to take them on a hike and teach them some stuff. This was something rabbis did all the time. So where they were, it was about a 20-mile hike to another place, and he basically rounded up his guys and took them on a 20-mile hike, and on the way there, essentially where they were going was a place that a good Jewish boy wouldn't go, okay? They were going to Caesarea Philippi. This is where the pagans live. This is a place where people didn't worship God in the same way as the Jews. And so on the way there, they're probably all nervous, thinking, where's he taking us? We're on our, going towards Caesarea Philippi, right? This was like the Vegas of that time frame. Like, a lot of stuff happens there, just stays there, right? This is the, where the pagans live. The Jews wouldn't want to hang out in Caesarea Philippi very much. And on the way, he stops somewhere along the way, and he has a little campfire. Okay, this is just me adding a little bit to the scriptures. It doesn't exactly say this. <laughs> he's, got his, he's got his youth group with him. Pulls out some, you know, uh, some kosher marshmallows, some Hebrew national hot dogs. <laughs> and has a conversation with his followers, right, with his closest people. Now, these are guys that have been living with him. At this point, they had already seen him control a storm, heal people with terminal diseases, deliver people who had demons in them. Like he had done some things in their eyes that made him different than any person they had ever met. But still no one had decided that this was somebody different than just a rabbi or a prophet. Okay, there was no one who had basically stood up and said, you are my Lord now, and I'm going to worship you as the Son of God. There was no one who had said that yet. And so he stops his youth group along the side of the road on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and over a nice fire, he has a conversation with them. He says to them, verse 13, he says, Now Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Right? Their answer basically was, A lot of people think a lot of things about you. We, we could say the same thing today. A lot of people think a lot of things about Jesus. We could ask a bunch of people, and we would get a bunch of different answers. And they were on to something. They were saying, like, no, some people are saying you're, like, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. Like, you're one of God's prophets. You're teaching and leading people in a way that's making their lives better. We know God's up to something in your ministry and in your life. But they hadn't put all the pieces together exactly. I think there are a lot of people living in our world who are in this very same situation where, like, there's a lot of stuff swirling around in your head about who Christ is, but you haven't necessarily landed on what your response to who he is is. Who he is is, okay? And so Jesus stopped. Okay, great. And he looked them in the eye and said, but who do you say that I am? The thing that's important to me is what you say. I want to know what you think, Peter. I want to know what you think, James, John. Okay, I want to know what you guys say. And of course, Peter who's definitely an eight on the Enneagram, 
You'll catch that later, some of you. Peter replied, you are the Christ. You, not Jeremiah, not John the Baptist, not Elijah. You're not just a prophet. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are now Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want you to understand that he, Jesus still looks us in the eye and says, what about you? Who am I? Am I this prophet? Am I a moral teacher? Or am I your Lord? Will you stop trying to manage me and take the edges off and try to make me palatable to the world? Or will you become a radical? Will you follow my hardest teachings? Will you become obedient to things even when they push against your own worldview? Even when they aren't popular in culture, even when people don't like the decisions that you make, will you continue to follow me and not try to rub the edges off of who I am? Because that is the question. That's what Jesus is asking all of us. He's saying, who do you say that I am? And I love what he does for Peter here, right? So before this, it's, a, you know, it's Simon. But after this, so Simon says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, you, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, but my father was in heaven. And I tell you that now you are Peter. He renames Peter. And in fact, he, he does a play on words here. He says, you are a small rock, and on this huge rock, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be a foundational piece of what this church looks like. Sci uh, Peter, the guy who chopped someone's ear off the minute that they tried to arrest Jesus. The guy who was always the first one to answer. The guy who was the most ridiculous out of all the, out of all the apostles. This is why I love Peter. He's me in a nutshell. Right? Jesus takes ownership of him. He receives him. He renames him in love. He essentially says, I'm going to give your life purpose. You were just a fisherman, and now I'm going to build my kingdom on your life. Right? This is what's available to us as Christians who don't rub the edges off of Jesus and receive him as Lord, that we get a purpose far beyond what we would have done on our own. You know, we go from being just a dad who sells insurance to being somebody who God is building their kingdom on. Right? We go from somebody who has no power in this world to someone who, who is who's told, I will build my church on you and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in fact, I will empower you to do something that you never thought was possible. If I'm your Lord, if you'll receive me at face value, if you'll receive the Christ that we see in scripture, not the one with the rounded corners, not the one that's palatable, not the one that is easy to defend publicly, not the one that's culturally relevant, the one who truly is Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, would you again reveal yourself to us? God, show us the places in our lives where we have managed you, we have rounded off the corners. We've tried to make you palatable. God, would you reset some of the things that we believe and think about you? 
Would you help us to feel the power that you have in our lives? Would you help us to step into the purpose that you called us to live with? Would you build your kingdom on us? Would you rename us? Call us good and new. God, I pray that uh, anyone who struggles with who Jesus is would have new clarity, would see you for who you really are, would understand what it looks like to follow you, to step into a world that needs to see and hear you. Jesus, we want to worship you for who you truly are. And as we think about this week, as we think about leading up to Easter where you gave yourself up on a cross for us, God, would you help us to understand that you have called us to a radical life, one that's all in, one where you're calling us to make you Lord of our life. You're calling us to live up to a higher standard, to live differently, to make a difference in this world. God, I pray that as we celebrate that next week, that you'd bring people in here who don't know you at all, people who are far from you, They'd be overwhelmed by your grace. They'd be overwhelmed by a community of people who are living this thing out. Help us to be focused on who you are, on your cross, and on the resurrection that changed everything. In Jesus' name, amen.